Good morning, church, and welcome to Village Park Online. We're so glad to see you this morning. Grab your Bible, grab some coffee, make yourself comfortable. Uh, we're going to dive into the Word of God. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 again. And if this is your first time with us, we want to say welcome to you. And if you would just take a moment and in the comments section, just type first time. We'd like to say hello to you and just welcome you to Village Park and hope that you're encouraged by the Word today. And, and also, we want to um, invite you guys to like and share this video. If you know someone that is walking through a time of difficulty or trial or struggle and you think this this uh, message today might be an encouragement to them just like this video share it and let your friends know about uh, what's going on i know many of you your kids went back to school this week and like mine uh, ours went back to school as well in person and i had two kids that were going into new schools luke was going into high school and noah was going into junior high and on the night before school started they were really nervous about uh, going into this new place and kind of understanding what the, the layout of the school was going to be like and what the schoolwork and was going to be like and were they going to have good teachers, bad teachers. And, and I remember going into junior high and going into high school, you just feel like you're in such a different place, a different environment. The move from elementary school to junior high is a big jump. And then from junior high to high school was a big jump. And I remember just feeling when I, on those first days of school, just kind of feeling strange. You didn't know everybody. You didn't know your way around everything what the bell schedule was going to be like. And so uh, just ask, have you ever been in a place like that where you, just a strange place where you didn't know where things were, you kind of felt lost? And maybe if you want to share a story in the comments and we can have a good laugh at that at, at your expense maybe. But it made me think of this uh, story that I heard of a, of a pastor or a missionary couple that came home from Africa and they invited some pastors from Africa to the United States for a conference. And so uh, they brought some of these guys uh, here and while they were here, some of the African pastors wanted to do some shopping. And even though the conference was being held in a small town, the missionary who had brought them to the States knew that they might get uh, lost or you know have some issues. So he gave all of them his cell number so that they could reach him. And so sent them out in the city and they were just walking around some of the shops. Well, one of the, the pastors from Africa got lost. And so he called the, the missionary and said, hey, I don't know where I am. I'm lost. And so the missionary told him, well, go outside to the street corner and look at the street sign and tell me where you are and I'll kind of figure that out and then let you know where you need to go. And so the guy walked, the missionary walked outside, uh, or the pastor did, excuse me, walks outside, he walks to the nearest corner and he responds back to the missionary, well, I'm at the corner of walk and don't walk. And obviously he was reading the, the wrong sign, but he was in a strange place, didn't know you know how to navigate, how to get around. And maybe you've had that experience as well, like my kids, uh, going back to school this week. And I've been in those in experiences or been in those situations before as well. And, and Peter's going to talk to these Christians that he's been writing this letter to, and he's going to talk to them about a strange place. But it, when he describes this place, he's going to tell them this really shouldn't be a strange place for us at all, because these Christians did find themselves in a very strange situation. They were facing persecution. They had difficulty on every side. There were challenges everywhere. And so they found themselves in a position that maybe or in a place where they hadn't been before and didn't really know exactly where they were and how to navigate that. And I just want to ask you this today as we as we dive into the word of God to just be honest. Are you facing some kind of trial in your life? I know these have been so strange these times that we find ourselves in not only with COVID but just a lot of things going on. Leslie and I were talking about it recently that it just seems like this year has been so different and so difficult and so challenging. I know people that are sick. We had a neighbor that lost a loved one due to COVID. We know people that have lost jobs. And I just want to know, are you facing a fiery trial today? 
Because if you're not facing one today, you just need to know this, that at some point in your life, you're going to face difficult circumstances. And I want you to understand by the end of the message today, the truth behind our trials in life. What are the trials there for? And at the end of these trials, how do we navigate these trials? How do we find our way around? What can we hold on to in the midst of our suffering? I want you to notice today as we continue our study in 1 Peter, we're going to pick up in verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 4. He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He begins in verse 12 with a term of endearment, the word beloved. And so Peter's not just writing a letter to some unknown person, and Peter's not an unknown author to these Christians who are receiving the letter. Like if you went down to Barnes & Noble and just picked up a book by some author that you didn't personally know or he didn't personally know you, th there wouldn't really be a connection. When Peter uses that word beloved in verse 12, it's a term of endearment. It, it's saying my loved ones or those that are dear to him. And so Peter is, is writing to these Christians who are facing persecution, and he's most likely writing this letter from Rome where he's facing some form of persecution as well. And then he uses this term in verse 12, this fiery trial. It's a single Greek word, and it refers to an agonizing experience of being burned with fire. And so he talks to these beloved friends, these Christians, these fellow believers, these loved ones in his life. And he tells them about this fiery trial, and he uses a word that describes the pain of being burned with fire. But there's an important word in verse 12, and I, I want to point it out. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at, and here's the word, the fiery trial. That word, the, it's a definite article. It's referring to a specific time or a specific circumstance that these believers found themselves in. He's not saying, don't be surprised at a fiery trial, the fiery trial, this one that you are experiencing. Anytime we study the Bible, it's important for us to understand the audience to whom the author was writing, the circumstances of the audience and the author, and to know the historical context around it, because that's going to tell us a little bit more about the message that the author had when he wrote it to that particular audience. And the fiery trial, the fiery trial that they were facing was widespread persecution at the hands of those who opposed Christianity. Now it's not clear for sure historically, depending on the time that this was written, whether the, the, there was statewide persecution at this time but persecution definitely had started at every level to some degree, whether it was government, employers, or socially. And we've seen those themes throughout the letter. And so there's no doubt that these Christians had been facing persecution, at least on, in some scale, to some scale, by the time that Peter has written this letter to them. And it's interesting because I think uh, for some reason, Christians believe that the Christian life in some, in some way is going to make them fireproof from trials, that we're never going to go through times of suffering. And, and there are a lot of people on TV that will preach those kind of things and, and tell people that if you're really having faith, you won't suffer. You won't go through difficulty. And when this happens, if you live by that mantra that, you know, we can't believe that suffering is going to happen and that when we follow Christ, everything should be easy. We say things like, I can't believe this is happening to me. Or why is God allowing this 
to happen to me? Why is God against me? And, and we're not questioning why God would allow, uh, excuse me, to find out the why behind our suffering, but we're questioning why God would allow something like this to happen to one of his children. And this is the very response that Peter tells us we should not have. Notice what he says in verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He tells them that we should not think that what's happening in our lives is something strange. In Job chapter 23 and verse 10, the Bible tells us that he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. In 1 Peter chapter 1, earlier in this book, we studied in chapter 1 and verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in those verses, what I want to point out is that, that testing and trials are a part of the Christian life. In fact, they should be an expected part of our lives. And so we should not find ourselves surprised or shocked when we are facing fiery trials. And in those moments, it feels like we're walking through a fire. Back in 2001, I was a cadet at the Houston Fire Academy, and we had been reading books and training at the academy about fighting fires and how you do it. And, and, and I remember the day of the first burn. They took us into the burn building. We put all of our bunker gear on. So we had everything on. We were breathing the, the uh, oxygen. And they started the fire in the corner of the room. And, and that fire began to grow and to build. And eventually the fire came over our heads. And then you could see the fire coming out of the smoke. And as the, the fire got hotter and hotter, that fire began and the heat began to drop down. And as it got down to where you were, what happened is that that heat would begin to press you down. And I have found in my life, my life, when I'm walking through the deepest valleys and the darkest circumstances that I feel like in some ways I'm being pressed down by the trials. I'm being pushed down. And Peter uses that phrase of the, the fiery trial. And what you need to know today is that trials are not the exception in the Christian life. They're the norm. They're to be expected. The Christian life is not some easy walk. It's not some easy road. We are called to a life of suffering. You remember that earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, that Peter says, to this you have been called to suffer as Christ has suffered. But here's what I want to encourage you with today, and I want you to remember this. When walking through the fire, cling to the promises of God. We find hope in the midst of our suffering and our trials when we are clinging to the promises of God. In fact, if you look down to verse 13, Peter tells us that we're to have a different response than what we find in verse 12. We're not to be surprised, but notice in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So when you're walking through the fire, I wanna encourage you to cling to the promises of God. That's where we find hope. We find hope in the midst of our suffering by holding tight and clinging to the promises of God. And in verse 13, we find the first promise, and it's this, that you will never suffer alone. Why don't you write that in the comments or maybe in the margin of your Bible or if you're taking notes. The first promise that Peter tells us about in this passage is that you will never suffer alone. This is a promise that we can hold on to, and that is that Jesus Christ is with us in our trials and in our suffering. 
in verse 13, Peter uses the word share. Insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that word share is koinoneo in the Greek. And that word, it means to be a sharer or to be made a partner with. Sometimes that word is, is actually translated into the word fellowship that we use more commonly. What he's saying there is that when we suffer, we are sharing in the suffering of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand. We're not talking about the suffering of Christ for the sins of the world because only Jesus could do that. But he's referring to suffering for righteousness sake. And that's what the majority of the last part of this book has been about. That as Christians, when we're living in an unholy and ungodly world, there are going to be times that we're going to suffer for our stance for Christ. But when we suffer, we are sharing in the suffering of Christ. In other words, we are shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm with Christ. You will never suffer alone. A few years ago, I was hiking with my brother-in-law and his brother uh, through Caprock Canyon. And as we were going along, um, I got severely dehydrated. I had been battling a stomach bug in the days leading up to that. And I noticed that I was in trouble when we stopped for lunch and I took my backpack off and, and I had no sweat in my shirt. I realized that my body was already beginning to show the signs of severe dehydration and heat exhaustion. And so we made a decision at that point that we were going to try to hike out in that same day rather than try to stay overnight, which is what we had planned to do. But I didn't know if I would be able to make it. And so we hiked a few more miles and we got to a point where my hands were drawing up. I was severely dehydrated and I couldn't go anymore. And I was really fearing, feeling some fear and anxiety in that moment. And we sat down, we took a break and we began to kind of uh, get together a plan on how we were going to get out. And, and one of the guys was going to hike out, but another guy was going to stay there with me to make sure that I was going to be okay. And I, as I look back at that experience, it was a very scary experience. And we were able to get out. A guy actually drove his truck right beside us uh, just by chance. He owned some property and we were able to, to get into his truck and, and he took us to the store uh, near where we were going to be camping. But, but I remember as I look back on that, how scared I was, but how, how comforting it was to know that I was not alone in that canyon, that I had my brothers there with me and they were going to try to take care of me and meet my needs. And when we are suffering in our lives for the sake of Christ, we need to know that Jesus Christ is always with us, that we will never suffer alone, that we are in the trenches with Christ. We are in koinonia with Christ. We are in fellowship and sharing in the suffering of Jesus Christ. So when we walk through the fire, we need to cling to the promises of God. And the first promise is that Jesus Christ is with us in our trials. We will never suffer alone. I want you to look at verse 13 again, and you'll find a second promise. And that's this, that you can have joy in the midst of your trial. Peter writes, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter tells them, rather than being surprised, rejoice. Rather than being down, your heart can be lifted. Rather than being depressed, you can have joy. Instead of worry and anxiety, you can rejoice. Now we read that, and I have to admit that sometimes I read that and I think, okay, yeah, here we go. Another pastor saying something that's impossible for us to do. Because for many of us, when we're suffering and when we're struggling, the last thing that we're feeling in those moments is joy. But Peter tells us that a promise of God is that we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering because Christ is with us. 
he uses some words here. I want to point them out. He uses the word rejoice. That, that word, it means to be glad or to thrive. It's the same word that was used when the wise men saw the star in the Christmas story. And, and the Bible records that they, they rejoice with exceeding great joy. That rejoicing is to be glad or to thrive. But here in verse 13, you see that he says rejoice and be glad. Those two words, be glad, it, it's actually two Greek words. And one of them comes from uh, one means much and the other one means to leap for joy or to jump for joy. Now, we might read that and, and use it sarcastically. Oh, joy, you know, great. You know, another bad thing is happening. But what Peter is saying is not sarcastic. It's real. He's saying that that at the end of our short time of suffering here is endless joy and we can rejoice in the moment. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. At the end of this life of suffering, his glory will be revealed. And at that moment, there will be unceasing, abundant joy. So as we suffer now, we can have joy in the midst of our suffering, knowing at the end of this suffering is, a, is an eternity of endless, boundless joy. He continues in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In the middle of that verse, he uses the phrase, you are blessed. It means to be supremely happy or blessed. Now, I want you to understand something here. These are not the utopian words of some first century pastor kind of preaching what we would call the prosperity gospel. That no matter what happens in our lives, we can always be happy and always be smiling. If you know who's writing this letter, it's Peter. And if you remember some of his stories from the book of Acts, you'll find, for example, in Acts chapter 5, that some of the apostles were in prison for preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And, and they were standing for Jesus Christ. And one of those apostles was Peter. And in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, after they had been beaten for preaching about Jesus, they were released from prison. And Acts 5 records this. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They didn't leave the council angry at the council. They didn't leave the hands of their, their oppressors wanting revenge for them or trying to plead their rights. They left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, we find not only the promise of joy in the midst of our trials, but we also find another promise. And that, that is that the source of joy is that our suffering will be transformed into glory. Notice in verse 14 at the end that, that he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God does not replace our suffering with glory, but he transforms our suffering into glory. In verse 14, notice the progression. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, in other words, if, if you are persecuted and you are put down and you're reviled because of the name of Jesus Christ, you are blessed. 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He doesn't say that the insults are going to be taken away and then you'll be blessed and that will be a sign that the glory of God's upon you. He says, no, even in the midst of your suffering, you're blessed because God is going to use that suffering to show that the glory of Christ rests upon you. Now, many of us, if we're honest, we, we don't want God to transform our suffering. We want God to replace our suffering. We want God to take out the difficulty and just give us the good. But God doesn't promise that. God doesn't always promise us that there won't be storms, but that God will use the storms in our lives for his glory and for honor, for his honor. If you follow sports, I was trying to think of an illustration or some way to communicate the difference between replacing and transforming. So sometimes in the NBA, they'll have a draft. And, and so they draft these players from college or from uh, in Europe and other countries, and they draft them to be a part of these teams. And it's always interesting to me, they draft these guys, and, and a lot of them will be 18, 19, 20 years old, young guys, and their bodies are still growing. And so they, they kind of look skinny. They don't look like their bodies are fully developed yet. And what will happen is some of these guys will get drafted, and then they, it doesn't work out, and so they're just replaced. In other words, the team says, okay, we're giving up on you, and they replace them with someone else. But then there are other players that get drafted, and they're, they're young, and their bodies are still growing, but they put the work in, and they meet with their personal trainers, and they watch what they eat, and they, they exercise, and they work on their game, and their bodies bulk up, and they're not replaced. In fact, they're transformed. Their body is transformed, and they get better. They, and that's, I think, the idea that, that I want to communicate with you, and, and that is that many of us want are suffering to just be replaced, to take it out of our lives. But what God is saying is that in the midst of your suffering, you can rejoice because God is going to transform your suffering into glory. In verse 13, Peter speaks about the future glory of Christ, that your suffering in the present time will be transformed or changed into glory at the return of Christ. But in verse 14, he says you can suffer with joy in the present that even though evil is spoken against you in this life, that in this life God will transform that suffering into glory as you honor him with your life. So when you're walking through the fire, I want to encourage you to cling to the promises of God. First, that you will never suffer alone. That's the first promise, that Jesus is always with us and we share in the sufferings of Christ, but also that you can have joy in the midst of your suffering because God will transform your suffering into glory. Peter continues writing in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? There's another promise in these verses that we need to cling to in the midst of our trials and suffering. And it's this, God will refine you. God will refine you. But you need to understand that sometimes that refinement is through discipline. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that 
in the midst of our suffering that the, the promise that we would cling to is that God is going to refine us by disciplining us. I used to say before I had kids that I would never ask my kids weird questions. My mom's favorite phrase, many of you know it, was I don't care if it's the Garrison Bulldogs. And I still don't know what that means to this day. But I would ask her, you know, hey, can we go out on Friday night to the movies? I don't care if the Garrison Bulldogs are going. You're not going. I don't even know what that means. But my mom would ask me questions. Do you want a, do you want a spanking? Do you want me to whoop you with a flip-flop? Do you want me to take away your toy? And I used to, I used to say as a kid, I, w- I would never say that as a parent, but I found myself saying exactly that. Because no one wants to be disciplined, so why would you even ask? Why would you ask your kid, do you want a spanking? Well, of course the kid's going to say no, because no one wants discipline. And when you're walking through the fire of, and struggling in your life, the promise that we cling to is that God will sometimes discipline us. Sounds super hopeful, doesn't it? But when you understand the heart of God and why God will refine you in that way, I think you'll understand why we can cling to that promise. In verses 15 and 16, Peter told these believers to make sure that they only suffered for doing what was right, not for doing what was wrong. And we've seen both sides of this throughout this book. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20, he says, what credit is it if when you are When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Sometimes we suffer in our lives because other people are persecuting us. But there are other times that we suffer at our own hands and because of our own decisions. In verse 16, Peter says, suffer as a Christian, but don't suffer, he says in verse 15, for evil in your life. Don't suffer because you're a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or you're a meddler. You're getting all up into other people's business. He says we should suffer as a Christian. And if we suffer as a Christian in verse 16, glorify God in that name as a Christian. But verse 17 is really important for us to understand why we must cling to this promise. Because Peter tells them that judgment would begin at the house of God. The judgment of God must begin at the house of God with his people. But why does God discipline and judge his people? Proverbs 3 and verse 12 says, The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11, there's a discipline for bad behavior. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Listen very well to the promise of God. The promise of God to discipline his children proves that he loves us and he only disciplines us for our good and never for our destruction. It's always for our refinement. So when we're walking through the fire, we can cling to that promise that even if we're suffering because of the sins that we have committed, we know that we're being disciplined by a loving God who cares for us and wants the best in our lives. He doesn't want us to live in sin as murderers and as thieves and as people who are doing evil. He wants us to live a life that is pleasing to him. And sometimes we, as God's children, will walk through the fire because we are following him. And because other people don't like us taking a stand for Christ, we may suffer for that. But I have found in my own life that many times I'm suffering Because I'm the one 
who threw the logs down and threw gasoline on it and lit the match. I'm walking through a fiery trial, not because of what other people think about me, but because of sin in my own life, the things that I have done. And I have to tell you that those moments are the ones I look back on and they hurt the most. And it burns and it hurts, but there's a promise behind it that even when we're suffering, God is going to use that to refine us. James told the believers in that book that they should count it joy when they face various trials because at the end of their trial, it was going to produce perfection in them and maturity. They would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So when we walk through the fire, we can cling to that promise of God that in the midst of that, God is refining us. In verses 17 and 18, though, I don't want you to miss this. There's another promise to anyone who's listening today who isn't a believer in Jesus Christ. Judgment certainly begins at the household of God, but just because it begins there doesn't mean it ends there. In verse 17 and verse 18, Peter asks some rhetorical questions to the Christians. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If judgment begins with God's people, what do you think the outcome is going to be for those who are not God's people? In verse 18, if the righteous is barely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We suffer as Christians in this temporary life for refinement, and it's just for a moment. But those who die without Christ will suffer for all eternity because of their sins. In the end, God is going to right all the wrongs. The judgment will begin at the house of God, but it will pass upon all people. In the book of Hebrews, we're told it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, there is a time of judgment. And at that day of judgment, what will matter is what you have done with Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel, the good message of, of the Bible is this, that we have all sinned and that God loves us even though we have sinned and desires a relationship with us. But our relationship with God is broken because of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And even though our relationship with God was severed by sin, God made a way for us to have a relationship with him. And that way is Jesus Christ, and that way is the cross. And on the cross, Jesus paid the price for your sins and for mine. He absorbed the wrath and the judgment and the punishment of God for our sins in his own body on the cross. And what we must do is respond to the message of Jesus by repenting of our sin, turning from our way of thinking about God and Jesus in our life, and turn in faith toward Jesus Christ and follow him with our lives. We must look to Jesus Christ in faith, a faith that saves us and that changes our lives forever. There's another promise that's found in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator who is doing good. That word entrust that you find in that verse, it's actually a banking term. It means to deposit it for safekeeping. If you take money to your bank, you deposit it there and, and your trust is in the bank to take what you've put in the hands of that bank to keep it secure that it would be guarded. And what God is saying in these verses, what Peter's telling these believers about God is this, that God is faithful. And in our suffering, in our fiery trial, we can cling to that promise that God is faithful. He is the friend, as the Bible says, that sticks closer than a brother. 
He is the friend who will crawl with you through the fire. He is the one who will give you joy in your suffering. He is the one who's faithful and true. He will never leave us and he will never forsake us. And, and, and what Peter says is at the end of all of our suffering that what we need to do is entrust ourselves. If God wills it that we suffer for him, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we entrust ourselves to God because he is faithful and we continue to live the good life that God has called us to. So let me ask you, what is the fiery trial that you're walking through today? When walking through the fire, I want to encourage you to cling to the promises of God. I've given you some promises today, and I want you to just take a minute as I read them to think about these promises and which one of them speaks to your heart. Because he says to us that you will never suffer alone, that Jesus is always with you. That's a promise that we will share in the sufferings of Christ. He also tells us that we can have joy in the midst of our trials. He says that in the midst of your trials, God will refine you. And in the midst of your struggle, God is faithful. And I think it's easy to make those promises impersonal. To say that you will never suffer alone. But I want you to take a moment and I want, I'm going to read these again, but I'm, I'm going to read them in a personal way. And as I read them, I want you to just write out each of these promises that we've looked at today. And may these promises be the things that we cling to when we're walking through our fiery trial. And here's the first one. I will never suffer alone. Do you believe that? Just write it out in the comments. I will never suffer alone. That's a promise from God. The second promise. I can have joy in the midst of my trial. I can have joy in the midst of my trial. Not everyone else will have joy in theirs. It's a promise from God to me that I can rejoice in the midst of my suffering. The third promise, God will refine you. Whatever your fiery trial is right now, whatever you're suffering through, it may seem like a strange place that you've never been to before. But you need to know that God will refine you through this. At the end of this, he's going to make you stronger. At the end of this, he's going to remove some of the sin in your life that's been plaguing you for so long. Just know that that's a promise when you're facing your fiery trial, that God will refine me. And the last one is simply this. God is faithful. Can you say that as a personal declaration? God is faithful. God is faithful in the midst of our struggle. And at times when we're walking through the fiery trial, it's easy for us to forget. And we feel like maybe God has abandoned us. But know this, that God is faithful. That we can entrust our souls to the creator who is faithful in the midst of our suffering. Continue to do, to do good and to live the life that God has called us to live as Christians. I want to just pray these promises over us this morning. So will you join us for prayer? God, we thank you that we never suffer alone. And we thank you that we can have joy in the midst of our trials. And we thank you, God, for the promise of your word that you will refine us. And we praise you for you are faithful. And for whatever struggle and trial people are facing today who are listening to this 
live stream. I pray, Lord, that these promises will be the ones that they cling to. That they will know with all of their heart that they are not alone. And that they can have joy. And that you will refine them. And that you are faithful. We thank you for that and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.